Thank you. Um, well, welcome. And uh, what we're going to have a look at today is the hot potato of homosexuality. Um, and did God really say? Did he really say? You shall not lie with a man as you do with a woman. Which is Leviticus 18.22. I have had people say to me, well, it's only mentioned once in the Bible, so doesn't mean much. Don't have to do it if it's only mentioned once. Whose heart's he testing? <laughs> so we're going to examine God's universal laws, homosexuality in ancient times, which is, I found quite an eye-opener, uh, Greece and Rome and Jesus and Paul, and what does the Bible say? So what we really need to keep in mind is that we are all human beings and sexual beings and we're all sinners. And God's universal laws, that incest is actually forbidden. Adultery is forbidden. And homosexuality is forbidden. And we'll find that right in the beginning of the Bible. If you look for it, it's in there. Bestiality is forbidden. And then we'll look at God's covenant with Noah who tripped up a bit because he got drunk and he had an indiscretion and the curse on Canaan. Some of you will be familiar with this so uh, forgive me if you've already been there. And we'll have a look at the nations surrounding Israel and what homosexuality really is is a tragic mistake. We'll have a look at Israel being set apart for God's purposes and therefore not to get involved in things like this as are the church of God. The Church of Jesus Christ should not be in deviant behavior. So it is not actually proper to refer to gay churches. So we'll have a look at society in Jesus and Paul's day and what they had to say and what we need to say to all these things. As you see, Telsa's not here, so I'm doing my own bit. I think I might need this one. As I go through the, what I'm going to say, you'll see why these things are here. Is that clear? I don't know how to work these things. <laughs> it's all in reverse. Let me come around there. See if I can get my arrow in the right place. That's right, Beryl. Stand right in the way. This one here, that one there, just want you to keep in mind. Maps are so interesting. I don't know whether any of you are interested in the maps in the back of your Bible, but you really should be. Whoops, that one there is where the ark landed, Mount Ararat. So just keep that in mind up the top there. And then this arrow here is Babylon, and it's Ur, where Abraham was called out of. And the other two, the Sodom and Gomorrah there, brilliant map I found, and Sidon and Gaza here and the land of Canaan, which we'll be having a look at in a minute. So if you can just keep that in mind, because I won't keep that thing going. Um, that whole area is what we're going to be looking at. What happened when the ark came to land, Noah came out, the people scattered, where they made their way over to um, and what happened on the way. So it's just interesting to keep in mind and to see the reality of what the Bible says about these things. 
I never used to be any good at geography at all, I still am not. Um, but I find it absolutely fascinating when I start looking at things like that. You know, quite have to search for maps like that. I found that in the back of a little tiny concordance, so it was very useful. So, the title of this one today is Did God Really Say? Satan's same old thing. And I've titled it Homosexuality, Grace Before Judgment. Has God really said, you shall not lie with a man as you do with a woman? Now, if you look at Leviticus 18.22, you will see that that is what he actually says. You should not, a man should not lie with a man as he does with a woman. So my purpose in teaching on this subject is not to engage in a debate or make judgments on the subject of homosexuality, but to study the whole issue from a biblical viewpoint. It is a complex and divisive issue, but one which must be addressed in order that the end time church may know the biblical position and the one which they therefore must take. I find it quite interesting the way that God has led me in what we have actually learnt so far, because everything just is dovetailing in together. I would not have thought that homosexuality would have come in with revelation, <laughs> which is what we're doing next time. Um, but because of the degeneration in our society, it's another pointer to the times we're in. Uh, totally, we're going to a totally degenerate state. Um, I don't want to lay anything on you, but I have heard it said that the state of the nation reflects the state of the church. So you can think about that. So I'm aware that in some churches this would not be a topic for teaching or discussion and it might even be avoided. It's important, however, that we don't shrink from addressing these issues um, because they are difficult. Um, I found myself looking at anarchy and rebellion yesterday, which is something I will probably feed into the whole revelation thing. And out of that comes, should you punish your children or not? Well, what's the Bible say? Spare the rod and spoil the child. We have so far away, you see. But anyway, that's another issue. Capital punishment and the doctrine of war are the two, uh, two other issues that can raise the temperatures of Christians. So we need to examine what stance the scriptures take. And I'll endeavour to be as sensitive as I can in my exposition and understanding of the scriptures as I see them. As I've already said, the purpose of this study is not to judge evil, but to bear witness to the truth. And to do that, we must look to the source of all truth, namely God himself, because it's only by revelation that we can hope to have objectivity and truth when it comes to issues like this. So as I've already said, I keep pointing there and it's not there anymore, uh, we, I'm going to attempt to look at certain universal laws that were in place from the beginning. I'm going to look at homosexuality as it, as it existed in the ancient pagan world and the commandments that were given to Moses about such things. I'm going to examine the cultures of Greece and Rome where Jesus and Paul lived and contrast these cultures with the moral values of the Bible. God's word revealed to us. And we will need to view this from a few Jewish standpoint as, as ever.
because it was to them that the commandments were given, which had been passed down to us through the scriptures. But having said this, prior to the Jewish nation being elected by God as his chosen representatives, he put various commandments in place within the heart of man, called the conscience. And I will be examining specific texts in the Old and the New Testament in order to look at principles that can guide our understanding on this issue and see how grace affects the issue of homosexuality and what our response should be. So, to set the stage, we need to make three statements, which I've already put in the bullet points there. When we come to this, we have to acknowledge we're all human. We all bear the image of God who created us. And that image has been distorted and twisted by our fallen sinful nature. Strictly speaking, it is not accurate or biblical to speak of Pope people as homosexuals or heterosexuals or gays because we're talking about people not freaks and some of whom have homosexual tendencies or orientations just as others has heterosexual ones we're talking about people created in the image of God and no matter how strongly we might approve of disapprove of sorry or be repulsed by their conduct we must never dehumanize them we must always distinguish between the person and the act. We're all sexual beings, and the Bible is very clear that sexuality is designed and blessed by God and proclaimed good. The explicit teaching of Scripture is that God made us male and female, so our sexuality is an integral and inseparable part of who we are. Sexual activity, according to the scriptures, is sanctified when it's expressed within the context of the marriage covenant. You'll remember the um, soul time, um, a little acetate that I showed you last time, and I've done another one this time, oh clever me. But this time... You remember the importance of what happens when uh, a sexual soul tie particularly um, is made outside of the marriage covenant. It's ungodly and it brings death because it's an act of worship within the marriage covenant. So when you come to same-sex sexual relationships, you have got disease and death says in Romans that they receive in their bodies the penalties of what they're doing. We don't like to look at what it says, but that's what it says. Um, just let it stand there for itself. It's ungodly. I mean, AIDS is an obvious thing, isn't it? So sexual activity, according to the scriptures, is sanctified when it's expressed within the context of the marriage covenant. From a biological and biblical perspective, sexuality is important. The Bible alone, among religious writings, speaks of the resurrection of the body and Jesus came to save people. Our bodies are important and what we do with them is important. And the third thing is that we're all sinners. 
Sin from which none of us is exempt has tainted and twisted our very nature and it's touched every dimension of our lives, including our sexuality. We all, because of the fallen nature, stand in need of redemption, body, soul and spirit. And sexual sins are not the only ones spoken of in the Bible. In fact, if you could compare them on a scale, which you can only do metaphorically because all sin is repugnant to God, sexual sins are not the worst sins. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that hypocrisy, pride and rebellion are an abominable stench to, to God. So, as always, we need to go back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, to see what God said in the beginning. In Genesis 1.28, God actually declared the sanctity of marriage and universal laws. I'll turn to it, it'll be nice. Am I breathing too hard down this thing? <laughs> Genesis 1.28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there they're told what to do. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish, subdue, and have dominion. Then in Genesis 2.24, we see the words, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God's pro-marriage. Marriage and family is God's design and it's all good. And from Genesis 2.24 we can draw certain conclusions on how God expected human nature to behave itself. This is the scripture from which we can say we can draw certain conclusions. And we could, we could actually term these God's universal laws. That is that they apply to all mankind, not just the Jewish nation, which was what came in later. He would give them commandments by which he expected them to live. So from Genesis 2.24 we can conclude that incest is forbidden, adultery is forbidden, homosexuality is forbidden, and bestiality is forbidden. This is not uh, unique to me, I found this out. Breaking this down, the ancient rabbis would say that from this statement in Genesis, the man shall leave his father and mother, they could reasonably conclude that sexual activity with a mother or even with a father's wife, a stepmother, is prohibited, so incest is forbidden. In cleaving to his wife, this is teaching that sexual activity is to be with your own wife and not somebody else's, so adultery is forbidden. To his wife means that sexual relations are to be with the opposite sex and not with another male. Homosexuality is therefore forbidden. They really went into the scriptures, didn't they? They searched them out. One flesh means that sexual relations with animals are excluded because animals are not the same flesh as humans, therefore bestiality is prohibited. I think that's pretty cute. <laughs> pretty neat. It wraps it up, doesn't it? Get around that one. One of the most beautiful themes developed throughout the Bible is this bride-bridegroom relationship, especially as it's applied to the relationship between God and his people. And we can see that even as Adam's bride came from his side, 
So the bride of Christ comes from Jesus' side. We wouldn't know anything of the beauty or depth of this kind of intimate relationship if God hadn't created us to experience it. Marriage is best for mankind, it's God's best, and it's good. This is why right at the beginning of the Bible, we find God declaring the sacredness and sanctity of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And we see that the purpose for this coming together is to be fruitful and multiply. You cannot multiply within the context of a same-sex relationship. So right away we can see that this must be fundamentally wrong. When a man and a woman are married, they become one flesh through the sexual union. This is the closest possible human relationship. And as we know, there is a spiritual element to it. So when a man and a woman come together within this covenant of marriage, their union, as I said before, is an act of worship to God. Within that covenant relationship, it is an act of worship to God. Outside, it's an act of worship to Satan when any other form of sexual activity takes place. So always... Outside of marriage, whatever the sexual act is, it is an actually an act of worship to Satan. When you get into the deeper things and the deeper difficulties of ministry, you will find that satanic abuse will always, always, always include very perverted sexual acts. Because why? Because it's an act of worship. And Satan has just perverted everything. But we have to take our responsibility because our fallen nature and our fallen flesh, at the end of the day, if we don't allow the Spirit of God to rule our soul, our soul will rule our physical bodies and then the physical body will let loose and do just what it likes. It just goes downhill. Because this physical body of mine has actually got appetites. It's got sexual appetites, it's got food it wants to take in, it wants to have all sorts of things just to indulge itself. But it has to be controlled. Spare the rod with it <laughs> and you'll spoil it. So it needs to be kept under control. So we'll see as we go on that one of Satan's primary tools is the perversion and degrading of human sexuality into something base, which offers worship to him through idols and shrine prostitution, of which the Bible has much to say. That's what led Israel astray in the Old Testament. They offered food, not only food to idols, but there was always sexual activity with it. When you see the way that God spoke to Israel as, as every act of bowing down to an idol being an act of adultery, um, it was spiritual adultery, but there was also gross sexual practices involved with it. Our bodies actually were created to house the Holy Spirit, and as such, God highly esteems our bodies, and indeed plans their resurrection after physical death. If it's all right, Lord, I'll come back as a size 12. That'd be nice. Anything which lowers the height of his creation... Man was the pinnacle of his creative work. And you find that in Hebrews 2, verse 7. is a perversion and an act of outright rebellion to him. 
So moving on to the universal flood and Genesis 9, uh, 12 and 13. Let me put my little thing in me up again. Is that okay? Just leave that there for a minute. Genesis 9, 12 and 13. And God said, this is a, a with Noah now. This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So he's made a covenant with Noah which included all of humanity and his instruction to him was go same again, and have many children and fill the face of the earth. You are no longer to be vegetarian, now you can eat meat. God said he would never flood the earth again and put a rainbow across the sky as a sign to that effect. Have many children, be fruitful and multiply. And you will remember uh, the first arrow at the top there is approximately um, where Mount Ararat would be. So just keep that in mind there. So to be created in the image of God is to know what's right and wrong. And therefore, even though we're not Jewish and not under the law, we are under the laws of Noah. And that includes a universal prohibition for homosexuality. Being fruitful and multiplying presupposes a man-woman relationship for the pur purpose of procreation. So again, God left Noah as he left Adam and Eve to get on with things, to be fruitful and multiply. And we can see how Noah interpreted this uh, from Genesis 9, 18 to 24. Now the sons of Noah who went out from the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard and then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their, both on their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away. They did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Very interesting sentence, that. So we see Noah planted a vineyard and drank of the wine and was drunk, and he was uncovered within his tent. Noah couldn't hold his wine. He got drunk. And it would appear lost his inhibitions. And at the end of verse 21, there is an interesting statement which says he was uncovered. And the word uncovered is the Hebrew word hithpael, H-I-T-H-P-A-E-L, which means imperfect. And this is the only time that the he that in the Bible that the verb uncovered, hithpael, is used in this tense in the Hebrew. It doesn't mean that he just went into his tent and his clothes were in disarray. The meaning in the Hebrew is that he uncovered himself for a distinct purpose. 
we're talking about the strong possibility of an undisclosed sexual sin which Noah committed whilst under the influence of alcohol. I should imagine that if I asked for a show of hands, most of you would say you realised that and you knew that that was where homosexuality started, is that right? Yeah? No? That's okay then, I'm giving you a bit of light today. This is where it all started, you see. So there we are, Mount Ararat, come down a little bit, come, made himself a vineyard, got drunk first thing, fine. But why does he curse Canaan? The implication clearly is here that while Noah was drunk, Canaan went into his grandfather and something grossly immoral took place, which caused Noah to issue this curse on him. And we can see from verse 22 that someone was watching. Voyeurism's not new. Canaan was having a look, see what was going on. Pornography. Watching someone else doing something they shouldn't. And by that means getting aroused. It's not new, is it? So Noah at this time in his own tent... And one of the things established in the word of God is privacy. And Noah had the right to be private within his own tent. But Ham was looking at what Noah was doing. And that was actually an infringement of his father's rights. And as soon as... Um, Ham left his father's tent, he went to tell his two brothers what he'd seen. And the word here is they went, he went to denounce his father. So he'd not only seen what was going on, he was then going to tell the other two what a dirty old man his father was. But the love, the honour and the devotion of the other two sons is shown by the fact that as soon as they heard what Ham said, they got a cover, went in backwards and covered the father's naked form. They were not about to dishonour their father. And it is reasonable to assume, and you'll see why later, and you'll see why the map, that this is the first instance in the scripture of homosexuality and it brought forth a curse from Noah, which had the effect of being a shattering prophecy regarding Ham's offspring in Canaan. Ham's offspring Canaan. As you saw, and you know all about Canaan's land, is the land that Israel was given. And you know all about the fact that they were told to utterly destroy them. Utterly destroy them. But you also know they didn't. And because of that, they never really came in uh, to what God had for them. I don't know about you, but I want to utterly destroy the Canaanites in my life so that I come in to everything that God's got for me. So verse 24 is the start of the prophecy, which continues through to verse 27. Noah wakes up, finds himself uncovered with his clothing in disarray and realises that he's compromised himself whilst under the influence of wine. And interestingly, he doesn't curse Ham, but Ham's son. So we can infer from this that Canaan purposely committed some form of sexual act with his grandfather. Because as soon as Noah realised it, he cursed Canaan. As I'm saying this, it comes into my mind that maybe Ham put him up to it. You just don't know, do you? So let's have a look at the curse. Verses 25 to 27. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, 
A servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Shem is the one we get all the Semitic nations from, the Jewish nation. And may Canaan be his servant. He actually has turned out to be that way. May God enlarge Japheth. I think we come from Japheth. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. That's powerful. We'll be having a look at prophecy when we look at Revelation. I've started to unpick that and that's led me right into the fact of prophecy and can we trust it and, you know, in the Bible that is. Anyway, Genesis 10, 15 to 19, we're going to leap ahead now with Canaan's descendants and we see the distribution of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as you come to Gerar, and to Gaza, as you go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Need to have a look at Sodom and Gomorrah down, don't we? There's not many maps, actually, that show Sodom and Gomorrah. I was delighted when I found this one. <laughs> the uh, little arrow that points towards Canaan there, you see Sodom and Gomorrah? And the reason I've shown you Babylon there is because that's where everything in way of idolatry started with Nimrod. Uh, but there we are, that's where we're talking about. He spread from Mount Ararat up there, right the way down and across to the um, Mediterranean Sea, I think it probably was. I called it the Great Sea in those days. So there's Canaan's land, Sidon, Gaza, Sodom and Gomorrah. Helps to see where it's all going on, doesn't it? Brings the Bible alive as far as I'm concerned. So this is where the descendants of Noah's cursed grandson went. And you'll know that the land in which the Canaanites dwelt was the promised land that God gave to Israel. And you'll also remember, as I said before, they were told to destroy everything they came across because of the idolatry and the, quote, disgusting practices of the Canaanites. So here we are. Let's have a look at it. Genesis 10:15 to 19. And Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. There's a place called Sidon there, you'll see the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Semurite, the Hamathite, and afterwards the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as you go towards Gerar, as far as Gaza, and then as you go to, towards Sodom and Gomorrah, Atmar, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. Bible's very interesting, you know. That's a, that's a very good in, in example of it. That we get that in Genesis 10. And then in Genesis 11, we go back to infill detail. And we come into the construction of the tower, where they all were one speech and one language. It's the Jewish way of writing. You sort of have a headline there. Um, man kills his wife in a moment of passion and then you get the infield detail on Friday this was happening, that was happening, he went in and, uh, and you get all the detail. You notice it says according to their languages in their lands and in their nations. Well at that time they hadn't been separated, they're not separated till Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is infield detail to Genesis 10. So you get the headline and again. When you come to looking at Revelation you see a, a lot of that. You get the headline and then you get the infield detail and that's why people get confused. 
Anyway, that's okay. So Genesis, uh, the chapters 18 and 19, if you really fast forward now, you find the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, with which I'm sure you're familiar, where Lot, the nephew of Abraham, has settled. And it's said that the men of Sodom are exceedingly wicked. And therefore it's no great shock when in Genesis 19 the angels come to town to see what's been going on there, as if they didn't know. Sodom is part of the inheritance of Canaan, which had been cursed by Noah. So now what do we see? We see generational sin, which is why I felt prompted to bring with me today the generational sin, the generational iniquity prayer. Because whatever your forebears have been involved in will have a bearing on what is happening to you in the here and now. And if you have areas where you have great difficulty, a besetting sin or whatever, or things that you cannot get out of your mind, the chances are it is generational. And the men of Sodom were almost to a man Sodomites. Now I'm going to have to spell this out for you, because it's not, but it's not very nice. So, that's, okay, this is all in the context of teaching. A sodomite is an offensive term for someone who practices anal intercourse. And they even lusted after the two angels God had sent to check out the wickedness of the place. It was the men of the city who wanted sexual relations with them. And it's here that we see God's heart of grace and compassion as Abraham pleased with God, no doubt prompted by God himself, if there are 50 be righteous found, will you spare the city? And Abraham on a roll keeps bidding down to if there are 10. But it's just like it was in the day uh, of Noah and the flood. About eight of them went into the ark. Noah and his what, missus and the two, three sons and their missuses. They all went in, but nobody else took any notice. So he keeps on bidding down to ten, but as we know, not even ten could be found and judgment had to come. There's actually a school of thought in the very liberal theology uh, that uh, it wasn't um, homosexuality that was the reason for the judgment on um, Sodom and Gomorrah. It was because they weren't hospitable people. And they wouldn't let the angels in. See, mankind will rationalize anything. And that comes from the church. That is one of the standpoint views of, of uh, one of the mainline churches in this country. They will defend that actually it was that they weren't being hospitable. I'll rest my case. Now, there's a very important theological distinction between grace and mercy and judgment. Sin necessitates the wrath of God and all sin has to be punished. If that were not so, then God would be unfair. That's why he labels some things sin and others righteousness. Anyone who commits sin can expect that God's just system uh, will have a penalty for that eventually. But God always responds to repentance a change of mind and heart towards him. I wouldn't be standing here if he didn't. He always gives plenty of time for repentance. The scriptures tell us that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And we know that even with Noah, there was 120 years while he was building the ark that everybody could have repented, but they did not. 
And he was preaching the gospel with every nail that he hammered in. He doesn't, however, respond to remorse, which is emotion, which wishes it hadn't been found out, but doesn't actually have a change of mind. Judas was full of remorse. He was not repentant. Big difference. One calls forth the mercy and grace of God, and the other leaves us under judgment. So there we see the universal law that was written in the hearts of men before the law given to Moses came into place. And we can also see the rebellion of mankind towards God's holiness from the beginning. So now I'm going to have a look at homosexuality as it existed in the ancient pagan world and the commandments that were given to Moses. The pagan societies which surrounded the Jewish nation held a view of sexuality that was radically opposed to biblical revelation and to Jewish custom. Homosexuality infused every aspect of their culture. It was considered normal, desirable and even exalted as the highest form of love. It was far more pervasive than we can possibly imagine today. So actually what we're doing is going backwards the degeneration in our society and the way it is going is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. But we are going rapidly backwards. That's why we need to know what sort of stance we should take towards these things and what the Bible actually says. We don't have to insist that people believe it, but we need to know it for ourselves so that we can judge righteous judgments when we're asked. So in pagan cultures, homosexuality was not only universally accepted, but also valued and practiced. It has been said that none of the archaic civilizations prohibited homosexuality per se, with one exception, and that was the Jewish culture. And like the church, they stuck out like a sore thumb, or they would have done had they stuck to what God had said. And this is what we're meant to do. We are not to, supposed to become like the culture that is around us. We are supposed to be a light in a dark place. So here we go back to Ur of the Chaldees. I love my maps. And you'll remember now, it isn't actually marked on this map, but it's where I've got... Babylon shown. Ur is very, very uh, close there. It's around there. That is the area of the Chaldees, Shinar, the Chaldeans. All of those names are used for that area there. So we're talking about there now. Okay? Can't do without maps. So Ur of the Chaldees was where, uh, or Babylon, where Abraham lived, was a pagan culture, and we looked at this before, where the moon god Sin and his consort Nana were worshipped. Actually, in the back of my Bible, it's, it's got um, a ziggurat, a picture of it. And the ziggurat is a high place that was built, I'll find it for you later if anybody's interested in seeing it, um, a high place that was built to worship, yeah, there it is, that's, that there is a ziggurat. And that is the ziggurat at Ur, where Abraham actually was called out from. So geography proves the Bible. It's still there. 
um, absolutely amazing. And that was where they would have gone up onto the high place to worship. So he lived in the midst of such a pagan environment that, um, when the true God called him. And Babylon, as we've seen there, was built by Nimrod, the, another offspring of another, uh, another son of Ham's named Cush. So Ham had a few boys that were not very nice. So Babylon was the seat of rebellion against God and the seedbed of false religions. In the Canaanite religion, which Joshua and the people of Israel encountered as they stepped into the promised land, the god El, or Baal, was the chief god. And he was believed to have had sexual relations with Asherah, or Astarte, it's called all sorts of names there. You see about Asherah poles in the Old Testament. This is the one. Or Astarte, she was a Babylonian goddess of fertility. And the majority of pagan worship was to do with fertility rites or appeasing the gods, sometimes even by human sacrifice. And there are four important scriptures on homosexuality in the Bible, two in the Old Testament and two in the New. The first is found in Leviticus 18.22, which we've already looked at. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. And the second in Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Wait for it. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Genesis 19, which we've already looked at, refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's a similar account about Gibeah and the people of the tribe of Gen Benjamin in the book of Judges. I don't know if any of you remember that, where uh, the Levite was traveling and he took his concubine with him. And the men of the town came and wanted him, so he gave them his concubine. And they did as they wanted to with her until the morning. And when he came out, she fell dead on the doorstep. And he cut her up in pieces and sent a piece to each tribe in Israel, which put them on their metal. And he said, should this thing be in Israel? But you notice that the death penalty here. And again, when we start to look at capital punishment, we will find out how far we are. Am I um, making noises? When we look at uh, the death penalty, you know, it's, um, it's something that actually the remission or repeal of it has uh, affected this country disastrously because we would not be in the state we are with regard to all the terrorism and things like that if God's rules had been abided by. As soon as they abolished the um, death penalty and as soon as they abolished the Witchcraft Act, which when the government of the country says it's okay, folks, it lets in the demonic in a big way. And so everything starts to go downhill. So when you get the country legalizing abortion, homosexuality, my feeling is, and this is purely personal, that the church should not get up on their hind legs about it and be all Puritan and all pious about it. What we should do is walk in such a way as to cause them to be jealous and to have them an answer for it and to pray. Prayer is our strongest weapon, not signing petitions and all this and that. Prayer is our strongest weapon. Go to the Lord, ask him how he wants you to pray about it. 
So we've already seen uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Gibeah. Um, and the, in the book of Judges, right at the end, the Israelites had no king. And it says at the end of the book, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21, 25. I think they're probably the most chilling words that you could hear. Complete anarchy. If it feels good, do it. We're heading there now. You've got what I want, I'll have it. Um, and in Judges 19.22, which is the one I've just talked about, the Levite was travelling with his concubine. That, that is... What I object to is that he said, you can do with her as you like. I think, here, hold on a minute. No. That's another thing too. So unregenerate man has an infinite capacity for lascivious and disgusting behaviour. In fact, uh, in my friend David's paper on this subject, um, and I wasn't going to include it because I thought that's just a bit too far. He says that man will go with anything and do anything to satisfy his sexual appetites. We're not very far off of that, are we? So Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 are the scriptures that deal with the principle of morality and homosexuality in God's eyes. He is establishing his right as the God of Israel to stipulate how his people should conduct themselves sexually as distinct from the surrounding pagan cultures. He says in Leviticus 18.3, You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, nor as they do in Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must be careful to obey my laws and follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Here, God is giving a list of what he considers to be unacceptable sexual relationships. And it's more than a coincidence that he says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God. And also ends in Leviticus 18.13 saying, I am the Lord your God. He is establishing his code of practice. For mankind. And in verse 5 of Leviticus 18, you will notice that these things are actually applicable to more than just Israel. We'll have a look at it. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The word man in this verse is the word for universal man. In other words, those who obey God's wisdom and will will find life. And this is an issue for all to obey, not just Israel. It's an issue of life and death. And the verse that relates to homosexuality in these prohibitions and limitations of sexual activity is verse 22. You should not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. He goes on to say you should not mate with any beast. Now why would he say it if it wasn't a possibility that man would do it? It's Nor shall any woman stand before a beast, just in case we think that we're exempt. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these things the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out 
its inhabitants. So, it's all men. So, in fact, so serious are the consequences that in Leviticus 20, 13, both of them are to be put to death, as I said before. He sees it as a capital offence. And these scriptures seem pretty clear as to the prohibition of such sexual activity and the reason why disease and death will follow. It's, that is why God only ever prohibits or commands because we will kill ourselves. <laughs> it's not that he's a spoil sport, it's that indulging in such things will kill ourselves. And so his warning is his compassion on an ailing and dying human race. This word abomination is the Hebrew word toeva, T-O-E-V-A. Transliterated in a general sense, it means an irregularity, something out of order, and because of that, it's offensive. So toeva is a mistake, a tragic mistake. Homosexuality is to walk in error. It's a mistake with tragic consequences. Used in this context, it has an even stronger sense of that which is detestable to God. It is a perversion of nature and the divine order and an abomination. God actually says in Leviticus 18.25 that the land the pagans were in became defiled because of their deviant sexual behavior and it vomited them out threw them out. What a graphic image. And he warns Israel, if you engage in those activities, you shall be vomited out of your land. Fifth cycle of discipline. They were vomited out of their land. They're coming back into Israel now. But because of the way they went on, the land vomited them out. God said, if you do this, there are five cycles to discipline which we may look at it. And on the fifth one, your land will throw you out. Um, give you two minutes for a comfort stop. That is what you're looking at when you're looking at sexual ritual abuse, satanic ritual abuse. You're looking at temple priests and priestesses, witchcraft, engaging in sexual acts, uh, to Satan and you will come across that I don't doubt in the fullness of time but God says there shall be no ritual harlots or perverted ones a female prostitute was known as a harlot and a perverted one the male counterpart was known as a dog Sh shrine or sacred shrine or prostitution was universal in ancient cultures, these shrine prostitutes performed homosexual, heterosexual, and all kinds of other sexual practices on behalf of their god. These practices were so widespread that references made to them repeatedly in the Book of Kings as a threat to Jewish culture. And there's just the same threat to the church these days, that the culture around us will not become our culture. We are meant to be a counterculture. 
Israel was always at risk of being led astray by other gods and never really succeeded in being loyal to the one true God. The Old Testament is full of warnings against intermarriage with the Canaanites and the Hittites, etc. And we joke about it, don't we? The Hivites, the Aravites, all the otherites. Because of their pagan practices, I mean, we can joke about that without realising what the whole thing's all about. And their outrageous sexual behaviour and child sacrifice which constantly endangered their relationship with the Lord. As they intermarried and took on the practices of their wives, they were led astray, and God calls this adultery. 3,000 years ago, God declared that homosexuality was wrong and an abomination to him. But so widespread was the practice in ancient cultures that it was never considered as abnormal. It was the Jewish ethic that was considered abnormal. And isn't that the same way today? Outsiders look at us and they think we're the abnormal ones. Live a clean life, you're abnormal. What's the matter with you? Go out there and enjoy yourself. Yeah, well, I'd rather not pick anything up. Thank you very much. And again, as I've said before, um, homosexuality was not thought of as a category or a concept until God declared his abhorrence of it. I think Paul says, doesn't he, I didn't know what sin was until the law showed me what it was, or the commandments showed me what it was. Until God declared his abhorrence, which set the Jews apart from the cultures around them. And they didn't distinguish between heterosexual and homosexual love. They distinguished actually between the one who penetrated and the one who was penetrated. Whether male or female was insignificant and the active partner or penetrator was considered to be socially dominant. We need to be aware of how widespread the practice was and its almost universal approval by the nations of the world. In a study entitled The Construction of Homosexuality, Professor David Greenberg of New York University recalls that Japanese Buddhism seemed to take no notice of homosexuality. Buddhist monks couldn't have intercourse with women, but as male partners were not forbidden, many monks took youthful male lovers. He further records that in the Arab and Islamic worlds, a de facto acceptance of male homosexuality has prevailed in Arab lands down to the modern era. In the words of one of the world's greatest scholars of Islam, the sexual relations of a mature man with a subordinate youth were so readily accepted in upper-class circles that there was little or no effect to conceal their existence. Professor Greenberg says, it's a common belief among the Arab-speaking mountaineers of northern Morocco that a, man can, a boy cannot learn the Quran well unless a scribe commits pederasty with him. In other ancient societies, such as Carthage, as testified to by the 5th century priest Salvian, the people glorified in it, and pederasty is sexual activity between an adult male and a boy. The Carthaginians were Canaanites. So you see, generational sin, how it comes down. What the forefathers have done is going to be genetically some people will come to me and they have a problem with lust. Well, it, it is because there has been lust in, the, in, in their forebears. And when we break that off, then they come into a place of being able to get released from it.
And of course, it's something we don't want to talk about. Don't want to expose ourselves about these things because we think, what will people think? Well, Satan's having a fine old time in the dark. Really? Bring it in the light. I'm like a doctor. I'm not shocked by anything. Because the Holy Spirit isn't shocked. He knows. I'm just glad when these things come to light so that people can get set free. And the Celts, according to Aristotle, esteemed homosexuality and offered themselves to other men without the least compunction. And it was not looked down on in any way or regarded as disgraceful. So we see that this way of life was commonplace. Israel. As a complete contrast to the nations around them, Israel was to be set apart as a holy nation unto the Lord. God's repugnance of homosexuality was clearly set out in what is known as the Holiness Code of Leviticus 18 and 20, where God clearly stipulates what's not sexually allowable. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, serving the king of the universe. God's revelation of the Holiness Code to Israel represented a sexual revolution <laughs> to the nations around them. I wonder if we might end up being a sexual revelation, revolution and revelation to the nations around us. He was teaching them that there is a right, appropriate and godly way to manifest sexual function and other ways are inappropriate and an abomination to him. It seems right to m mention at this point that uh, women will sometimes come to me and say, oral sex within the context of marriage is okay, isn't it? And I have to say, no, sweetheart, it isn't. God built us for a place for the penis, and it's the vagina, and the mouth is not the place. Uh, and it sometimes can cause quite a stir, because, of course, it's the infiltration of the culture around you have to get, when you do a job like I do, not to be squeamish about using the right words for the right body parts. <laughs> because we've actually got to come out and not sort of talk about thingies and what's-its. <laughs> when you're dealing with children, it's different. Because they're, they're going to talk a different sort of language and you've got to pick up on what they're saying. But um, uh, when you're dealing with adults, we know, don't we? And if you're, if you're actually coming and asking the question, you, you, you know in your heart. And the fact of whether it's good or not is neither here nor there. <laughs> the fact is it isn't right. So the enjoyment part of it is neither here nor there. I like chocolate but, and buns and cakes. I enjoy them very much, but I'm telling my body they're not, it's not to have them. So there we are. Get this thing under. So there's a right, appropriate and godly way to manifest sexual function and other ways are inappropriate and an abomination to him. He sanctified sexuality within the context of marriage. He esteemed and valued the marriage covenant and extolled marriage as a way of perpetuation of the family. He elevated the status of women and established a sexual ethic that has been the basis of our civilization until this time. By design, his law puts limits on the sexual impulse. It controls and channels God-given sexuality into life-giving patterns for the well-being of the individual, the family, and the society at large. God took what could be common and profane and sanctified it unto himself. 
On the Sabbath night, the Orthodox Jewish male was encouraged to have sexual intercourse with his wife because it was a holy day of the week and therefore it was appropriate they should engage in the holiest act of the marriage covenant. The act of sexual intercourse as we saw when we discussed soul ties is an act of worship to God within the marriage bed. I keep going on about that. Or Satan outside, whichever sex, indulge in it. Sexuality is good and when controlled it leads to a secure and prosperous society. When uncontrolled, it leads to a diseased and disintegrating society. God says, do this and you shall live. Otherwise, you shall have distress, disease and ultimately death. He's not a spoiled sport. The whole of the book of Leviticus is about how to keep yourselves clean and not get... Uh, infected with anything and the rules that were there were set in place to keep you clean it's just it's not he's he's such a gracious and loving God and he understands us exactly he knows the stuff of which what we're made so what does the New Testament teach about homosexuality The New Testament is a definitive and authoritative interpretation of the law which Jesus came to fulfill. If you turn with me to Matthew 5, 17 to 19. And he says, Do not think that I came to destroy, the word is misinterpret, the law or the prophets, I did not come to misinterpret the law, but to fulfill or to correctly interpret the law. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that the law, the commandments of God are eternal. And we must not try to persuade ourselves that because Jesus made no direct reference to homosexuals, he agreed with their behavior or somehow now overlooks it. God is love, but he's also holy. One definition of holy is that he is also, he is altogether, totally other than we are. And Revelation 21.8 tells us that the sexually immoral and the abominable will have no place in the new Jerusalem. And 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 clearly says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, which is training and discipline in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. We must remember that when Jesus walked the earth, the books he quoted and used were what to us are the Old Testament writings. And as we have seen already, there are clear warnings from God in these. The New Testament wasn't written because they were actually writing it as they went along. So everything needs to be seen from that Jewish perspective. Jesus was a Jew. And we also need to keep in mind that Jesus is God. And when the Father speaks, Jesus speaks. 
And as much as he is our loving bridegroom, he's also our coming king. And he wrote this. He's not sloppy agape. We'll be having a look sometime, perhaps what agape love is really all about. It's love without a hook. Romans, what's Paul say? Romans 1, 18 to 32. Romans, I mean, Paul is probably the, the one that actually comes out with it more than anybody else. Romans 1. I make no apology for reading large chunks of scripture because it's the word of God that's living and active and divides between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. So it's good to hear it. 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore, also God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men also, leaving the natural use of the woman, in, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Notice the word error again, a tragic mistake. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Speaking to the Romans, not speak, he's speaking here to Romans. And he's speaking about the wrath of God, which is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of humanity. He's describing the conditions of ancient Greece and Rome. Remember, our culture has inherited a Greco-Roman culture. And Paul says that this is an issue for all humanity and every person is without excuse. He's saying homosexuality is an abomination. 
a tragic error with horrendous consequences. It flaunts the rights and regulations of the Creator. It dishonors God and leads to the destruction of self. It leads to depraved, inflaming and compulsive passions to a perversion that causes its own destruction, turning in on itself in an ever-tightening spiral of self-delusion and self-destruction. But for the pagans, it was the norm. In Greece, not only was homosexuality a conspicuous feature of life, it was exalted. Seduction of young boys by older men was expected and honoured. Graphic pictures of men and boys in sexual positions adorned countless Greek vases. What was accepted and practised among leading citizens of Greece was bisexuality. A man was expected to sire a large number of offspring and head a family while engaging a male lover. The interchangeability between boys and women was widely taken for granted, but the culture most appreciated boys. Alexander the Great was reported to be indifferent to women but passionate about men. Sparta institutionalised homosexuality between mature men and adolescent boys and homosexuality seems to have been universal among male citizens. And in Rome, the culture that Paul addresses in Romans 1, 5-7, the term nation had become synonymous with pagan. So what Paul is saying is, I have been called by the Lord Jesus to call people out of paganism. In Romans 1, 21 to 28, Paul is saying their sexual immorality is actually the judgment of God upon them. He's saying that in their sophisticated thinking and high intelligence, they have considered the issues of God and have made a deliberate choice. And the Greek here suggests that this is not something casual or accidental, but they have considered the things of God and said, no thanks, I'll do it my way. And in so doing, Paul says that their wisdom is foolishness and they have incurred God's judgment. God's handed them over. The language here is of a deliberate and measured act by God who hands them over to their perversion. And their very sin becomes the judgment upon them in their own bodies. I think that is absolutely horrendous. So in Romans 1, 26 to 32, Paul is describing that the Gentile or pagan lifestyle of the world around, world around him and the other believers in Rome. So he's actually talking about where, where he's living. As our society slides further and further downhill, we can identify with what Paul is experiencing here. The pagan view of sexuality was and is radically opposed to the Bible view of sexuality. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, we'll have a little look at it for clarity. Paul's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals. And in my thing it says underneath, catamites. 
those submitting to homosexuals, nor sodomites, so he's not missing anybody out there, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, you cannot say that someone can, you can have a gay church or, or whatever because he says such were some of you. Because the whole regenerative process brings you out of what you were into what he wants you to be. I mean, there are things in my past that I wouldn't air here because I don't need to, but I was like that. I'm not like it now. Uh, because this is the whole thing. We were washed, we were sanctified, and we do not inherit the kingdom. So anyone who says they can go on doing these things has no inheritance in the kingdom. They may not lose, as far as I can see, their salvation, but their inheritance is sorely in question. And I, this whole issue of inheritance, I'm, I'm really wrestling with the Lord. I want to know what it means. I really want to know what it means. I want to know what the kingdom means. I want to know what inheritance means. Every now and again, I get my teeth into something, and I've got my teeth into this one right now. So he's talking about two different types of homosexual activity. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, if the kingdom is within us, which it is, there is no inheriting of God's kingdom within us, if you see what I mean. There is no coming forth and showing forth of the fruit of the Spirit, the ways of God coming out into their lives. Neither fornicators, sexual activity out of marriage, nor idolaters, worshippers of idols, nor homosexuals, literally catamites, which is a young partner of a homosexual man, nor sodomites, an offensive term for someone who practice anal, practices anal intercourse, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit. And I am hoping we'll have a look at uh, inheritance in the kingdom during the summer school. Uh, but for the moment, this is clear. And I'll, I'll stop here and let you have your lunch. That the kingdom of God, um, they are precluded by their behaviour from coming in to their inheritance. And Paul is talking now to Christians, not non-Christians. Because the whole Bible is addressed to believers. Unbelievers don't spend time um, actually going into the Word of God. They're not interested. I never was before I became a Christian. So this whole thing, we've got to apply it. It must be speaking to believers. Even when he writes to, to the Romans and says, you know, come out of this lot. Okay. Well, thank you very much for listening. We've just got a little bit more to do this afternoon. Um, and then... I'd like to sort of, people, there's, there's, if you've got any requests for prayer, perhaps you'd have a think about it while, during the uh, lunchtime. And we'll talk a little bit about generational sin. So if you want to switch me off now, that'd be fine.